what a what a gift to come here. And um, my two my two boys are here also. So Noah and Silas, you want to just raise your hands there? So Silas is. Oh yeah, <laughs> look, you got to clap, guys. That's awesome. Yeah, you got to clap. So Noah is uh, Noah is a drummer. I'm embarrassing him right now, but. Um, He's one of the, he's an amazing drummer, and Silas is a parkour artist. Do you guys know what parkour is? Yeah, have you seen the Office uh, skit where they go, parkour? <laughs> anyway, Silas actually does parkour, and uh, he can do a flip off a wall. So maybe later we'll have a, we'll, if he gets really bored, because he might get bored this morning listening to his dad talk, he might, you know, flip off a wall. So anyway, um, uh uh, Pastor Scott, thanks for your kind words about me, and I have a lot of kind words about your pastor, too. This, you guys may not know this, but Pastor Scott is actually the bishop of, of Providence. He is looked to by so many in ministry as, um, not that he's, he's the youngest looking bishop of all time. Look at that, healthy head of hair, got me beat. He's, he's, he looks pretty good, I think, but... Um, but anyway, we all just respect him so much, and um, and I'm just we're so grateful for his. He's like a mighty oak in the city of Providence, and 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 so are you guys. So anyway, it's a privilege to be here with you, and um, and so today I want to talk about. Uh, this is better to talk about it today than it would have been last Sunday. But I want to talk about fire, because it's been a hot summer, hasn't it? Has it been slightly hot this summer? I think it has. Um, and so I want to start out by just mentioning a truth, and that is that we, uh, we need fire, don't we? We need it. Um, we know that, like, the cavemen and the cavewomen needed fire, but a lot of times we don't think about how in our modern days, in the modern, you know, city of Providence, we still need fire. And um, so a couple years ago, we had this worship service at uh, Sanctuary Church, and it was in the fall, right when it's starting to get cold, like you can see your breath. And anyway, we, we, we showed up on a Wednesday night. I was part of the band. Um, and we were anticipating that the building maintenance folks would have, like, lit the pilot light in the boiler. You know, that little flame that kind of enables you to heat the building. And so anyway, we show up, and it turns out, and we hit the, you know, thermostat, and nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. And it, and, um, Turns out they had they had uh, they had not lit the pilot light, and in fact the the boiler was broken too, which it breaks all the time. So, uh, praise God for old buildings. Um, so as beautiful as that church space was, uh, as awesome as you know whoever was talking, I think it was me, and I had some really great things to say, um, and the worship was killer because you know it's great worship, um, and. Um, we knew it was cold, and we told people to bring sleeping bags, you know, to try to huddle up, and we had hot coffee. But as awesome as everything was, I don't think anyone paid, uh, was able to remember anything that happened that night because it was so miserably cold, right? The building was unusable. And uh, without a fire somewhere in some basement room of the building, uh, nothing worked. And so for any building, including this one, to work, there has to be a fire burning somewhere, somewhere in the building. And it's not just, 
And if, it, if, it, if it's not burning, eventually when it gets cold, the, the pipes will freeze, right? And they'll burst and the building will flood and rot and, you know, time for a new building. And it's not just our buildings, too. It's our whole city needs fire. Do you ever think about this? Uh, for, for us to plug in our phones, to run our microwaves, uh, to turn on the internet, to use the fridge, you know, for, for restaurants to run. And also... Especially like in the summer for you guys to have air conditioning. Who, who praises God, by the way, for air conditioning? Today, not so bad. Get open the windows. But last week, we had to shut down church at Sanctuary because we we're not blessed with this system that you guys have here. So I, I praise God for your air conditioning. But think about that. Even for the air conditioning to work, there has to be a fire burning in some power in the belly of some power plant in the city, right? And it's not even just our city, right? For, for, exi- for our lives, for existence, for the earth to be more than a hunk of rock floating through space, right? For the oceans to stay liquid, for rain to fall, for plants to grow, all that for, you know, if you want eggs and toast for breakfast, somewhere in our solar system, we need a fire to be burning in the heart of the nuclear furnace that is the sun. And so here's what I want to say. In the same way that we need fire, we need God. God is fire. He's the power source. He's the life source. He's the energy source for everything, not just in the physical universe, but in the spiritual universe as well. And so in the same way we need fire, we need God. And in fact, God is fire. I don't know if you know the story of uh, one of the great philosophers of European history, Blaise Pascal. He was a French, 17th century French Enlightenment philosopher. When Blaise Pascal came to faith, it was not, he was a very wise guy, created math equations, all kinds of cool stuff. But when he met Jesus, it was not through the use of his intellect. He was a genius. He was an inventor, physicist, philosopher. But it was through a vision and an encounter that he had with God on the night of November 23rd, 1654. And that night, Pascal, as he was praying and, and uh, meditating, actually, and writing in his you know, daily diary, he received a vision of the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is what he wrote in his journal. Are you ready for this? From about half past ten in the morning... Until half past 12, dot, 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 all capitals, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. And he goes on. Basically, it's almost like a philosopher like speaking in tongues. Is it safe to say that in a church like this? Um, God revealed himself to Blaise Pascal as he's revealed himself to so many others throughout the generations, as the God who is, as fire. And for this philosopher, this moment of encounter with a God who is a consuming fire was so precious and so life-altering that he removed this page from his journal. He actually had it sewn into his, his pocket, the pocket of his jacket right over his heart. And he kept it there his entire life. He didn't tell anyone about it, but after he died, uh, as folks were going through his stuff, they realized 
that this, and they unsewed it, and they found this journal entry. The greatest moments in human history, the world-changing moments, happen when human beings encounter fire. When they encounter the living God, not ideas about God, not doctrines about God. Those come later, but first comes fire. So when, if you remember in the Revelation, when John sees Jesus, the risen Jesus, his eyes are blazing like fire. When Moses sees God in the, in the desert, he appears in a fire, in a burning bush. Um, on, the night of, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down and pours himself out at the birth of the church, he comes down in tongues of fire. And so the greatest moments in history happen when human beings encounter fire. And this morning, I want to read a story that I think is relevant for us today. Um, I want to read the story of Elijah. Um, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, during a time of apostasy, which is a fancy word for when people are turning away from God. You guys ever felt like you've been living in a time when people are forgetting about God, turning away from God? Does that bear any relevance to us today? You know, I just think of the other night I was here praying uh, on the Wednesday night um, refresh uh, time, and um, just this powerful moment of kind of realizing where this church is situated, just physically. You guys are like right in the middle of the city, and right next to downtown, right next to the south side, right next to Planned Parenthood, right next to Crossroads. And it occurred to me that there's a tremendous need that people have for God. But in so many ways, our city is, is turning away from God and has been for a long time. What do we do about that? Well, Elijah was in a similar situation. He was a prophet of the Lord, uh, and Israel was called to be the people of the Lord. And yet, all around Israel were um, the Canaanites who worshipped Baal, who was a false god. And um, all of a sudden, the king of Israel marries this woman named Jezebel, and she's really into Baal and other idols and Asherah. And, um, and she starts trying to kill the prophets of the Lord. And, and then finally, they get to a place where Elijah feels like he's not the only one, but he kind of feels like he's the only one left. And there's 450 false prophets of Baal. And, uh, and also, the king wants to kill Elijah, too. So that's where we're at. This is a dark place, and Elijah really needs some help. In fact, I think what Elijah needs is some fire. Okay, so here, here it is. 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, if you want to read along, this is 1 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you? Troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Actually, I didn't even notice that. There's not just 450 prophets of bit. So this is one dude up against 950. That is a significant challenge, all right? So, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by what? By fire, he is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. <laughs> Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the Lord, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God, the Lord. He is God. Amen? This is the word of the Lord. And then Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal, so we won't read that part. Um, Anyway, my main point tonight, if you remember nothing else, is is that we need fire. We need fire. And I'm not not saying that God is literally fire. Uh, God is beyond that. He is spirit and truth. But fire is a biblical metaphor for the immediate, tangible presence and power of God. 
And Moses needed fire in the wilderness. The Israelites needed the pillar of fire. The early church needed fire. They needed the Spirit of God to come. Uh, And Elijah needed fire on Mount Carmel. There was no other way. Elijah is one man surrounded by so many people that are turning away from God in this time of apostasy. Elijah needed God to show up. And it was only the presence of God that helped to change Israel's heart and mind. And I think as I was sitting here the other night reflecting and thinking about our current situation, church, is in, in this city, this, Providence, by the way, is, did you know this is, is one of the most, it's called a, a post-Christian culture, right? It's a culture that's been, that's been exposed to Christianity for a really long time. You know, like, you know, sometimes you get exposed to a, a weakened version of a virus, like maybe like the, the coronavirus, and it actually vaccinates you against it. And in many ways, our city has been vaccinated against Christianity. It's a post-Christian culture. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know if you know this too, but w- r- the affiliation in our, in our society with Christianity has declined faster in the last decade than at any point in American history. Did you know that? Um, and I think some of this is with good reason, because the church is kind of a hot mess, right? It really is not all that, she is not all that she could be right now. And so people look at it, and they're like, I want nothing to do with that. And part of me is like, I don't blame you. Um, Providence is one of the most post-Christian cities in New England, which is the most post-Christian region of America. And so how do, we, how do we help reach a city like this, whose heart in many ways has been hardened to God, some of through our own fault? Um, we're also living in a city with some issues, right? Is anyone aware? Like, Providence has issues. Like, you stand here on the street corner, and there's a lot of crazy stuff happening out there, right? Um, our kids go to the Providence Public Schools, uh, partly because, you know, that's our only option, and uh, <laughs> we're just crossing our fingers. But, dude, it was nuts this year. The day after that shooting in Texas, we had some stuff happen at Nathaniel Green where my son goes that just made us feel completely helpless and out of control. And uh, actually, we even talked to the mayor. Like, my wife gets involved in stuff, and she called the mayor's office, and he actually called her back, which is really neat until you heard what he had to say. And he's like, yeah, I think the, I think the public school system is, is broken. and I, I don't know what to do. And that was, like, disappointing to hear the mayor say that. You know what I mean? Like, we have, we have problems in our neighborhoods. We have people that are facing addiction. We have people that are facing poverty. Just, just over here, I mean, it was so awesome that Renaissance Church was out in the, in the, what do we call it? The, the, yeah, the block party anyway. But there's problems, right, all around us. How do we, how do we engage with those? How do we break through? How do we see those things changed? I think we need fire. I think sometimes we're tempted to believe, oh, you know, if we just work harder at our faith or we do more or we try harder or we figure out the right strategies, right, Scott? Like, Oh, we figure out the silver bullet strategy for growing the church. Oh, you know, and we really work as hard as we can and do the best we can with what we have. 
then the city will change, right? I met John Michelson uh, when I was on, on staff with InterVarsity at Brown. And I think for the last 20 years, I've been doing college ministry. And I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but I think, I think I'm pretty good at college ministry. And I think a lot of the people I worked with are pretty good. Like, we're pretty smart. We're very hardworking. We're very innovative. We learn how to exegete our culture. You know, we do the best stuff. We do the best we can with what we have. But one of the reasons, like, I'm making a transition in my life right now is I just think the best we can do is not enough. We, we did amazing college ministry uh, in InterVarsity for 20 years. And I'm not saying college ministry is hopeless. I think we need, we need to do it. But what, what broke my heart is that after 20 years of excruciating labor, less than 1% of college students in New England are part of any kind of Christian group at all. And I'm talking InterVarsity, Crusade, Chi Alpha, RUF, uh, what are the other ones, John? Uh, Catholics. And so I just think the best we can do is not enough. We need fire, okay? We need fire. We need the presence of God. We need the return of God's presence and his power. The theological word for that is revival, right? Revival is this pattern that repeats itself in the life of God's people. It's the return of God's manifest presence, his royal presence. God is, of course, present everywhere, but there are times in history where he shows up with fire and everybody knows it. 202 years ago in the city of Providence, the summer of 1820, the fire of God showed up right here in this neighborhood. In fact, Beneficent Church was part of it. In fact, a lot of the streets like Gano Street and other streets in Providence are named after pastors. And in that summer, almost 7% of the, of the city of Providence came to faith and joined the church in one year. What would that be like today? And so I think what more than anything, what we need right now is the fire of God. But here's the problem, and here's my second point. We can't, we can't bring fire. We, can't, we, can, we cannot produce fire on our own. Only God can send fire. In other words, revival or the presence of God dramatically changing people is not something we manufacture, Right? I know we can, a lot of times we use the word revival and we're like, that means we're going to put up a big tent, you know, from August 2nd to August 5th and, and it's going to be a Holy Ghost revival or whatever. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about revival as a sovereign act of God where God steps down and his presence is manifest to everyone that's there. Um, so in the, in the scripture, when Elijah prays and the fire falls, everybody knows that it's God. Everybody knows. Everybody can see it. And that's what makes it revival. And the people cry out and they say, the Lord is God. In 1949, there was a revival in the islands off the coast of Scotland. If you've ever studied it, it's amazing. In fact, there's even YouTube videos of this guy, Duncan Campbell, testifying about it. And here, here's one of the things he said. 
He said, when God stepped down, suddenly men and women all over the parish were gripped by the fear of God. God, are my hands pure? God, is my heart pure? My hands clean? And the moment that happened, and it was at a prayer meeting in a barn, when they surrendered themselves to the Lord, he, he says, a power was let loose that shook the whole island. God stepped down. The Holy Spirit began to move among the people. And a minister writing about what happened the following morning said, you met God on meadow and moorland. You met him in the homes of the people. God seemed to be everywhere. What was this? Revival. Not an evangelist. Not a human effort. Not anything at all organized on the basis of human endeavor, but an awareness of God that gripped the community so much that work stopped. What would it be like if we experienced that, if our city experienced the presence of God? Have any of you ever experienced the presence of God before? I remember we were praying in my living room about seven years ago, and we began to feel the conviction that we needed to gather to pray and seek God. And one night, as we were praying, and I still remember the song because I try to play it again. It hasn't had the same impact. But, um, but the presence of God entered the room. And um, so much so that people, like, people fell on the ground and had to like, cover their faces. And... Um, and then this has happened again also. It happened one time at church, at Sanctuary. And I remember when it happened, there were some folks that were new to the faith. They were not Christian, didn't believe. Afterwards, they came up to my wife and they said, what was that? Like, who, what, what was that? They didn't, have, they didn't know God, but they knew that somebody was present in the room. And so here's the tension. We, we need fire, but only God can send the fire. So what do we do? What do we do with that? We need fire, but only God can send the fire. So we don't try to go manufacture God's presence. But what do we do? Do we sit around in a city that's turning away from God and do nothing? Is there something we can do? So as it turns out, there is, and it's what Elijah did. right? So only God can send the fire, but we can build the altar. Elijah needed God to show up in his time when people were turning away from God, but he couldn't produce the fire. So the thing that he did was not nothing. He built an altar, right? And as it turns out, it's a lot of work to build an altar. It's physical work. It's emotional work. And before any time of revival, there's always somebody who builds an altar. So uh, Tim Keller, if any of you are familiar, is a pastor in, in New York City. He says that altar building is the human side of revival. It's the human part of preparing for revival. An altar is a space that we create, right? If you want to build a building in New York City, you've got to tear something down, right? If you want a helicopter to land, you have to make room. And so it's, when we're building an altar, we're clearing away space for God. We're clearing away space in our hearts. Lord, we say, Lord, I'm making room for you to do whatever you want to. Clearing away space. 
Um, and revival is always, this is so interesting because revival is never something we earn, right? It's a gift from God. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is, is, is something God bestows on us. But God, even though we don't earn it, it doesn't mean that God is opposed to effort, right? So they're actually, think about it for a second. And say if I, I was like, hey, I've got a whole truck full of furniture that I'd like to give to you, right? It's brand new furniture from like, what's the fancy place? West Elm, you know, or so, what's the best place to get furniture? I don't even know. My wife takes care of that part. But uh, uh, by the way, we have a couch that's like, um, that's like, 20 years old, so we haven't gotten a new one. But say somebody was going to give you a whole house full of new furniture, like you were on the prices right, and all of a sudden it's coming your way. You couldn't just put that furniture in your house, could you? Because your house is already taken up by all kinds of other things. And so in order to get that sweet West Elm furniture in your house, you actually have to do a lot of work. You have to move other stuff out of the way. And this is the same thing it is with revival. So we have to clear space. Sometimes we fast. But the primary thing that we do before any revival is we pray. That's the heart of the altar. We pray. And there's really only one prayer that matters uh, before any revival. And it's this. God, we want you here. Because God comes where he's wanted. And so prayer, altar building involves bringing prayer to the center of the church, to the, to the most important part of our lives, our families. It means creating a space, and it means asking God to come with his presence. And if you think about, like, what the early church did before the fire fell at Pentecost, that's what they were doing. They were building an altar. They went into the upper room. It was about... 120 people, just like this. And they waited in prayer. And they, they waited. Jesus says, don't try to go out and save the city of Providence on your own. But wait until you've been clothed with power from on high. So, like, this is too long of a story, but this calling around altar building is actually the thing I'm doing next with my life. It was an invitation I think God gave me in the year 2008, um, and I kind of sat on it for seven years. You can ask me more about that. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and then in 2015, I finally said, yes, okay, God, I'm going to build an altar. And I didn't know how to do it, you know. I was like, and I kept talking about it with my wife, and she's like, oh, I still haven't seen this altar. Like, where does it go? In the backyard? Like, do you need a fire permit for it? And I said, no, I think it's clearing space and, and inviting God to show up with his power. And so my wife, Sarah, who's very strategic, said, well, why don't you just, why don't we set aside Tuesday night and we'll give up Netflix. It'll be like our dead animal on the sacrifice. And, um, and you can invite your friends over. We'll have some instruments like this. You can share a little bit about revival, and then we'll just pray. And um, I was kind of nervous. I was like, I don't know, what if nothing happens? Um, but as we gave ourselves to this and as our friends started coming over, um, we experienced the presence of God. And some of those early prayer meetings went for like four or five hours. People just 
soaking in God's presence. And I think in many ways, that, and by the way, that meeting is continued to today. Every Tuesday we pray together. And it went, it went on to the, the Zoom machine during the pandemic, but it's still going. And it was there that I, I learned to hear God's voice. I experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I experienced the release of inhibitions. Um, we, we, we experienced a flow of creativity, like people started writing songs, new worship songs. And there was this deeper community and camaraderie. And people experienced healing and repentance and deliverance from addiction. And two of my best friends met there and got married, so that was cool. And in many ways, as this, this altar has continued, the culture of prayer, the culture of seeking God that we developed there has spread and it's diffused, kind of like yogurt, into everything else that we've touched. And so I think that as we close, I think my, here's, here's my, my plea with you, is that, friends, in this moment in the church, more than anything, we need the return of the presence of God. Nothing else we're going to do is going to actually make a dent in the world around us. We need God. We need God to show up in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our city. And only God could decide when he's going to show up, right? Only God can bring the fire. But in the meantime, he's given us an assignment. He's given us a task to do. And I think it's similar to like, what, you remember when, when God spoke to Noah and he said, hey, Noah, I have an assignment for you. Like, I'm going to bring the flood. And, but I don't want you to sit around in the meantime as, as you prepared. It doesn't look like anything's happening, but I want you to build an ark. And luckily Noah did, right? And he was not unprepared for the flood. But I think in the same way, I think God in his mercy, I'm convinced, wants to send a flood of his presence and his power and his renewal and his revival uh, to this city and beyond. But I think he's waiting for us to be ready for it, right? I've even had visions as I've been praying about this and as I prepare to launch this new ministry even of like angels in the heavens waiting by these trap doors. And they're waiting to release a flood of the presence of God. But right now the church is really tiny and wimpy and weak. And we're, we're going to get washed away by it. And I believe that the, the pivotal behavior that we need to lean into in the next season is building altars of prayer. And that's the way that we root ourselves in God in his truth, in his word, in his love, in his character. It's the way we build our spiritual stamina. It's the way the walls of our souls will become firm enough to hold and handle the outpouring that we're asking God for. And so I just, I, I just think that now is the time for us to make a commitment as the church to prayer. And that's part of the ministry. I'm not going to talk really a ton about it, we're just going to actually move into prayer right now, but, um, but my, my vision is I, want to, I would like to see a network of 100 prayer altars in churches all around New England that are connected to and encouraging and um, supporting one another as we seek God for a greater outpouring of His Spirit in our time. 
And so as, this, as I close, if there's something that's stirring in your heart as you hear about that, a uh, couple things I, wa- I want to encourage you. Number one, where is God calling you to build an altar? In your heart, in your family? Is God inviting you in a more significant way to be part of the prayer gatherings that are happening here already on Wednesday night? And then if you want to connect with me, come find me after the service, and I'll get your contact info and loop you into what we're doing. But I just want, to, um, I just want us to pray right now, and then Scott's going to lead us. But Lord, um, we need your presence in this season of decline, just like Elijah did. We need your fire in our lives. We need an infusion of your presence in your life and your power. And Lord, we know that before any of that happens, in the past, you always stir up men and women and children to pray and to ask you, God, and to call on you. And in the same way that Elijah built the altar, God, in faith and asked for your presence to come, I just ask that you, would you, would you move us, God, to pray and to seek you in a way, in a in an extraordinary way, God, that is going to match the the outpouring of your presence and revival that we're longing for, God. Would you move us to pray? Would you activate us in prayer? God, some of us are tired. Some of us are exhausted. Some of us are weary from a very difficult, painful season. But I pray that you would refresh us, God. Would you blow through us, Holy Spirit? Would you stir in our hearts and give us the spirit of prayer? Give us groaning. Give us intercession, God. And help free us up to pray with one another and to build an altar, God, in this church. And we pray for all the other churches in New England, whether they're tired, whether their their budgets are going under, God, whether the pastors are burnt out, um, whether they're shrinking or growing, Lord, would you establish altars of prayer so that we'd be ready, God? Would you help us as a church raise the sails of our hearts so that when you begin to blow, we're ready to catch the wind? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.